I remember going to pick my son up at this little neighborhood Christian preschool that he went to. His teacher said to me, you know, how was your day? I told her my husband was diagnosed with cancer. And she said to me, you must be really worried. Her saying to me that I must worry, I thought, wait a minute, like, must I? Do I really need to worry today? And what I told her is, you know, I've decided I'm gonna wait to worry. And that was sort of my mantra all the way through. Hey guys, welcome back to the Lila Rose podcast. Today we are going to be talking about grief and the loss of loved ones and the story of an amazing person, Kendra Tierney, who's a mother of 10, an OG, an original mommy blogger, and the founder of a great business and ministry called Catholic All Year. Kendra is going to share about the beautiful love story of her and her husband, the loss of her husband and how she navigated that with faith and how that impacted her and her 10 kids, one of whom is only now four years old. I think you're going to be inspired by this episode. I went into it thinking, okay, this is going to be, there's going to be some tears here, but I thought there was a lot more peace, great advice, and joy than anything else. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. As always, don't forget to like the podcast if you're on YouTube, like the channel. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you are listening on your podcast app. And don't forget to leave us a review and give us five stars. That helps the podcast reach more people. Good Ranchers is the number one place in America to get your meat, your seafood, your poultry, and your pork. There's a very special deal happening today at Good Ranchers, which is meat and poultry and pork all sourced in the United States from American ranchers, and that's you get to pick a free protein with any box, subscription box that you order. So at checkout, if you use the code Lila, you can get up to a $500 savings plus $15 off that order using the code Lila. This is a special deal just for the month of November, and you're going to love trying good ranchers. My husband and I love the meat. We love the poultry. You're not going to find meat of this quality and this ethically sourced in your grocery store. You're going to find it at GoodRanchers.com. Go to GoodRanchers.com today and use the code Lila at checkout for up to $500 savings off your subscription box of America's Best Meat. Kendra, thanks so much for joining the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. I've been wanting to do this for a few months now, so I'm glad it's working out. Yes, yay. And you're someone that I admire, and I know a lot of people who admire your work. You've done a lot of work in the liturgical living space, and so let's start there with just your background with your work, and then most importantly, you're the mother of 10, and you are also, you've had an amazing marriage. So we're going to get into that and so much more. So let's start with people who may not be familiar with your, your work. Tell us more about Kendra. Yeah. So Catholic All Year is uh, is the website and my sort of apostolate. Uh, it started off as a mommy blog back when those were that's when those were all the rage. Um, and uh, And yeah, the idea behind Catholic All Year is celebrating the Catholic feast days in the home and bringing the days on the liturgical calendar into our home in order to learn the, you know, doctrine, the lives of the saints, the sort of rhythm of the church year, which is all sort of baked right into the liturgical calendar, sort of a framework for how to learn and celebrate and, you know, and all the different days of recommended, you know, penance and celebration that, that go throughout the year. So that is something that I discovered you know, with my family and just wanted to share with other people. So now it, 
there are books. Uh, the Catholic York Compendium is the sort of starter one on uh, on liturgical living in the home for me. Um, and yeah, and now we also have things like subscription boxes, membership, uh, lots of products from us and other Catholic makers that can help you bring the Catholic faith into your home. And you've been doing that while having 10 children. But yes. How long have you, when did you first start doing the mommy blogging thing, which has turned into the full-blown ministry yeah. you have now? I think it was 2010, maybe. An OG. Yeah. You're one of yeah. the originals. <laughs> wow. Um, and yeah, when my oldest son, who's 21 now, was was little, he was just one of those kids who asked a lot of questions. And I was raised Catholic, but not, but without any of these sort of liturgical living in the home traditions. And so as he's asking me these questions, I'd have to say, like, I don't know, but I'll find out. And so I started reading books and I started listening to podcasts and um, and and researching sort of the history and the the answers to his questions. And I realized there's this whole world in the Catholic Church of of these crazy sort of macabre patron saints of things and and recipes that are associated with feast days and and all these things that that I had no idea even existed. And and it's been just in our home a really fun way to you know, to incorporate these these church traditions and catechism and build that strong uh, family culture and and Catholic identity. And, you know, that that word identity is so loaded now, but you want your kids to feel like they're part of something. And what I want them to feel part of is is their faith, is is the Christian church. And uh, and so having these crazy traditions and, you know, and and associated activities and foods, I think really helps with that. So how long, when did you, when did you first meet your husband? So I want to start from the beginning and then we're going to go through marriage. And then also I know you've recently lost your beloved husband. So I want to get into that experience and just how that has all impacted your work and your family. So we met in 2001. Uh, we were he we were both volunteering for the parish youth group for the in uh for the youth group that I attended when I was in high school and I was back from college uh so my parents said I should go and volunteer at the youth group meet a nice boy and I go to the uh to the meeting for potential volunteers and I see this guy standing on the steps and he's tall and he's skinny and he's wearing what the marines call bcgs for birth control glasses <laughs> these are really thick square tortoise shell glasses but you found that very attractive and sounds like i was like that's it that's the guy <laughs> um but yeah so we got to know each other uh but i mean very quickly we were engaged within 10 weeks of the first time we met we were 10 uh, weeks 10 weeks yeah engaged within 10 weeks yeah uh so how did, when did you is feel in your heart this is the one i mean honestly I, I you know we uh don't believe in the concept of soulmates but there was just something about him the first time i saw him i was like yeah that 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 guy um and i uh just sort of made a point of getting in his way until <laughs> what did that look like until he spoke to me like, like literally if he needed to go into a room, I would just like happen to be standing in his way and he would have to talk to me. And he had a policy of not dating the women who were volunteering at the youth group wow. because he wanted to, you know, focus on the kids and the gospel. 
<laughs> um, but uh, and also, you know, every, at, at that age, we were, you know, all all in our 20s. And so everybody's looking for dates to weddings and he didn't want to be everybody's date to weddings. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so he ended up uh, asking me out. Oh, I had a fake pumpkin carving party. A fake one? Yeah. Well, I mean, it turned into a real one, but I was standing there talking to him after math. And I said, you should come over. I'm having a party. And I wasn't <laughs> having a party. And then I said, I'm having a pumpkin carving party. Uh, and that was totally which, spontaneous. Yeah, just- which isn't a thing people you know 20 somethings really do and plus in southern california this was the beginning of october and if you carve your pumpkin early they like rot and melt into this like weird gooey mess so anyway i had my fake pumpkin carving party and he came over uh and then i think it was just a dating just no no okay. i had i had other <laughs> i like guess what i managed to get my squad to come with me <laughs> and act like this had been a planned thing oh and i invited my parents too because that's how cool i am and continue to be um <laughs> and then much later on my dad who is uh y- you know it, i i said to my dad oh you know jim you met him at my pumpkin carving party and my dad said to me i kind of got the feeling that was the whole point of that party <laughs> It's like, oh, no. <laughs> it's not subtle. Uh, but anyway, but it all worked out. He ended up, uh, he proposed to me on the steps of the church. Again, he gave, and he was a Marine Corps officer at the time uh, in San Diego. And he gave me an ammo can. And I had to, fortunately, I knew how to open it. Uh, and there was a ring box in there. And uh, yeah, and he proposed and his family was in town. And he had asked my dad and. All of that. Uh, and then, yes, yeah, so we got married about nine months later. So we were married inside of a year of the first time we laid eyes on each other. Um, and it sounds like he, it wasn't just you inviting him to the pumpkin par- carving party, but he, within 10 weeks, was ready to get down on one knee. Yeah. And when did you know first that he liked you? Well, uh, or loved you? <laughs> Sounds like it went right he, to luck. He uh, invited me to the Marine Corps ball, which I mean, that's an impressive event to to attend. Uh, he looked very dashing, um, and it was just uh, I think especially the environment of he he was an officer at Marine Corps boot camp, and uh, so to show up there and see this sort of hierarchy and the deference, and he was. Um, uh, the, you know, the first sergeant is yelling at the recruits, you're going to embarrass us in front of Lieutenant Tierney's girlfriend. (laughs) Um, so it was, you know, it all just made him seem, uh, like, you know, just this very, uh, impressive, impressive figure. And he was also just sweet and clearly a good guy. And he, he was discerning well I, when i first met him he was uh discerning going to seminary and coming back to the marine corps as a chaplain that did not last long I, <laughs> uh but he did the uh he did the flip open the bible and close your eyes and, and touch it thing and it was a verse from sirach that says happy the husband of a good wife wow so that was good uh and also i'm glad we were catholic because sirach isn't in all bible i was just gonna so say where would i be now <laughs> <laughs> wow meant to be really um meant to be. yeah but uh but it, it it went it went quickly but you know he he's got a really 
great family that I immediately got along with well. He gets along, he got along with my family. And um, so it didn't, it didn't feel like it was a particularly, you know, uh, it, it wasn't a, didn't feel like a particularly risky decision, um, even though it did, I guess, seems fast when you say it. <laughs> so what day, what was your month and date for your wedding? It was uh, August uh, uh, no, yeah, it was August uh, um, 11th of uh, so uh, of 2001. Wow, married, yeah. So, and then how many years married? So uh, he passed away in July of of 2022. So just before our 21st anniversary. I'm doing the math right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So tell me about it's just starting your family life together. You went on to have 10 children together. And he also would go on to battle cancer. Right. Yeah. So uh, we were both raised Catholic. But, you know, like I said before, I I, not in a way, really, either one of us not in a way where we really had a great, um, you know, formation in in what we believed. Uh, he uh, He had sort of a deep, natural sort of sense of right and wrong um, that was helpful to me because I was kind of a crazy 20 something and uh, it's still surprising to me that uh, that that all worked but uh, um but uh yeah the first i had ever heard of not contracepting within marriage was the optional um nfp sort of seminar that was part of our marriage prep um when when we were preparing for marriage in san diego um and we listened to that contraception why not tape in his car in his parking garage and we sort of looked at each other we're like wow this seems you know this seems pretty extreme this because we had decided we wanted to have a lot of kids and four was the biggest number of kids either one of us could imagine having i have one sister he has a sister and a brother um so we decided all right we're going to have four kids uh, and then we listen to this tape and we decide, all right, well, we don't think as crazy as, as it seems, we don't think that we can claim to know better than the Catholic church on this. So we better just take that leap of faith. And, and honestly, I look back and, you know, we all have those moments of fiat in our life, right? Where we have, where where God asks us, like, will you correspond to this grace that I want to give you? And and as uncatechized as I was, as as not formed as I was, it was that moment of of God saying to me, "Here, will you trust me in this?" And and we did. And uh, and after we got married. You know, I, I still we learned about NFP and and I was approaching it with sort of a very contraceptive mindset, right? Like, all right, fine, we won't use artificial contraception, but we're still going to have our four kids and we're going to wait until he is done with business school. And well, we were terrible at NFP and I got <laughs> pregnant almost immediately. And if you're going to be bad at something, that's a great thing to be bad at. And, you know, over the course of our marriage we really decided there was a point where where we did figure it out after he was first diagnosed um when was that so he was diagnosed uh three days before i was i found out i was pregnant with gus who is about to turn 16 um 
so uh, that that's our fourth child. Um, so he was diagnosed with melanoma. Three days later, I found out I was pregnant with my fourth. Um, and then I uh, found out I was pregnant with my fifth. <laughs> uh, you know, very close on after having uh, after having Gus along came Anita. And then we finally figured out NFP and were able to successfully practice it and decided that because, you know, Jim was understandably feeling like the responsible thing to do would um, would be to focus on, you know, his treatments. So we did successfully practice NFP for about a year and and I just hated it. I hated it so much. And I um I really felt like um, I had a strong preference for us just being completely open to life and open to the number of children that um, that would just come to us naturally. And um, it took it, it took that year. You know, it took months for for Jim to sort of come around to see it that way, also. But. Um, but I'm so grateful for for our family. And, you know, I look at Gus or Anita and I'm so glad that that's not the end, the end of our family, even though, you know, I tell people now, like I'm sort of this cautionary tale now. Right. I'm I'm the reason you don't have a big family because you could end up a single mom of 10 children. But they. You know, they they have been such a comfort and such a, a joy and especially, you know, th throughout Jim's illness and then, you know, and then also since it's so it's hard to to devolve into into that grief, into that focus on yourself when there are so many people around who not only like that, who truly understand what you're going through in a way that nobody outside your immediate family could and so this is something that we've been through together that we are, you know, are still working through together. And um, I, I guess, you know, we're, we're, we're getting ahead of, we, you know, we haven't talked about the details of, uh, you know, of his illness and stuff yet. But just the way that, that my older kids have stepped up, the way that the younger kids, you know, the little ones still have so much joy in life, um, in you know, in in a, in a, a way that I think would surprise people. Um, you know, it, it's it's been a really beautiful thing. Our sponsor today is Carly Jean Los Angeles. Carly Jean Los Angeles is a clothing company that shares your pro-life values that has gorgeous capsule clothing for the every woman. What that means is you're going to find already outfits prepared for you at CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com, depending on your style, depending on your size, well-made, ethically sourced clothes that you can mix and match to find a great outfit every day. When you wake up in the morning and you're not sure what to put on, Carly Jean Los Angeles has solutions for you. Check out CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com today and you can use the code LILAROSE at checkout for 20% off your order. That's CarlyJeanLosAngeles.com and use the code LILAROSE at checkout for 20% off your order. What was it like finding out that Jim had melanoma? Yeah, so... Um, his, you're, you're about to be pregnant with your fourth. Yeah. So what sticks in my mind the most, it, 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 so his his diagnosis was 
pretty serious right from the beginning. He had he had a really big mold that was originally misdiagnosed once and and then later when he finally did get it biopsied, it came back immediately as it you know as melanoma and as um metastatic melanoma so it had already spread and the statistics for that aren't great uh it's a it's it's a less than 50% uh 5 year survival rate for for that diagnosis so immediately it was something that you had to sort of take seriously um but i remember going to pick my uh, my son up at his, at this little neighborhood Christian preschool that he went to um, a couple days a week. His his teacher said to him, said to me, you know, how was your day? And again with my again with my awkwardness, I told her what had happened in my day. Somebody that I don't didn't particularly know well, but I said, you know, my husband was diagnosed with cancer, and she said to me, "You must be really worried." And I guess my, you know, little contrary spirit that, are, you know, her saying to me that I must worry, I thought, wait a minute, like, must I? Like, do a, how are things right now? If I look at, at, if I look at my husband, he's seems perfectly healthy right now. He has no symptoms of, uh, of illness other than just us knowing from this piece of paper that, um, you know, that, that he has this. My kids are are great. We're comfortable financially. We have a roof overhead. We have food to eat. Do I really need to worry today? And and so I told what I told her is, you know, I've decided I'm going to wait to worry. And and that was sort of my mantra all the way through is that like, am I are we okay today? And and really we were. And so I wasn't quite ready to commit to the Padre Pio you know, pray, hope, don't worry. I wasn't sure I could manage that, but I could wait. I could wait to worry. And and so that's what I did all the way throughout his his illness as he uh you know, he went through treatment at uh at the beginning and surgery and it appeared that he was in remission for for ten years. Um and and then uh he was, it, you know, it was rediscovered. So it 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 means that likely it was just there the whole time still, um, but it spread eventually to his lungs and then to his brain. And uh, but throughout, you know, throughout the surgeries, hospitalizations, eventually he was um, having seizures. He uh, was unable to drive. He, you know, I. Um, he wasn't able to to do buttons and things, and it was just this really slow sort of progression of of him requiring more help. Um, but but really, each day, it didn't seem like that was the day that we needed to worry because things were still okay, and and that we had so many people praying for us, and and I believe so strongly in the power of intercessory prayer, you know, you know, to keep despair at bay. And I just felt like through that whole, through the whole process, that, that somehow it was going to be okay. Either he was going to be healed, he was going to continue living with, with this as he had been for so much longer than, than any of the doctors thought that he ever would. Um, or 
he wouldn't survive. And and I had to trust that somehow we would be okay, even even if that happened. During that time, what about your kids? I mean, how did you and when did you communicate with them? And they were having more kids. Obviously, <laughs> this is a period of m- multiple years. And how did that spirit, your spirit, affect them? That this is going to be okay. It's we're going to delay the worry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we were open with the kids. Um, you know, most of them were born. Uh, you know, while while as Jim was already um, facing, uh, already had cancer. Um, so it was something that they were sort of always aware of. But he was getting up and going to work every day. He was, you know, attending the kids' school events. He was helping them with homework and. And so even though we all knew that that this, you know, existed, it really wasn't something that affected our, our day-to-day life until sort of towards the end. And when he was diagnosed again, because you know, there was that whole there was a whole 10 year period where it seemed like he's like he had beat this and, and it was something that was in the past. Um, and. And so then we were faced with another sort of crossroads on do we want to continue to be open to life? Do we want to um, continue to be open to to having more kids? How many kids at that so point? So I guess at that point we had nine kids. Um, and I remember being in the car on the way to school with with my kids and because, you know, in a big family, the the kids do have a lot of responsibility for their younger brothers and sisters. And um, so my, I was still homeschooling all the younger ones. And my three oldest were, um, were going to uh, St. Monica Academy. Um, and, and I remember saying to them, you know, we know that, that dad's uh, cancer is back. We don't know how that's going to go. This is a, you know more serious diagnosis than he had before and i just wanted to talk to my to to the to the oldest kids and sort of sound them out like how would they feel if we continued to be open to life if i ended up you know pregnant and and feeling sick at the same time that that jim was feeling sick and um I knew my daughter, uh, who's our second oldest. I knew I knew she would be on board with it, and I thought that maybe my third son wouldn't really care either way. But my oldest son is really somebody who, you know, he he's very pragmatic. He's he's in uh, he's in uh, engineering school now. He's in he's in aerospace engineering, so he just has that very you know sort of pragmatic mindset. And so I'm expecting him to like talk about pros and cons and. Uh, so he would have been like 15. And what he said to me is, I like babies. <laughs> and that was it. It wasn't, it wasn't this big like weighing the like the like benefits and 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 hardships of a new baby. It's that like this is, you know, a person who would be in his life. And it was just so um it, it it was so obvious to him like how to value that um and so then we we ended up with little barbara our uh, our caboose um <laughs> and how old is she now so she's 4 now she was 2 when when jim passed away and uh and then her uh her, the 
the next brother up, the, the next one up from her is George, and he uh, he's five now. But you know, the two of them, Jim was was pretty sick for for um, you know most of the time they're around. He um, but they really do have fond memories of him. And one of the you know as, as he got less able to you know run around in the yard with them and you know things like that he he would read them books he would sit on the couch and read them books and so my especially little barbara has this she really associates listening to stories with with her dad and they he especially they loved the richard scary books and mm -hmm. so they would sit on the couch and um he had most of them memorized because he uh, he was sort of losing vision um, and but but he could still read them because he'd read them so many times. Um, so when you found out the second time that the cancer was back, when when did did worry ever kick in for you? I, I would say that uh, that I I really still was able to to rely on on hope and on that feeling that I couldn't see how it possibly could be okay, but I could trust that somehow it would be. And when Jim was diagnosed again, I mean, that was really the overwhelming feeling for it. And there were so many people praying for him and, um, you know, all over the world. And I was really hopeful that, that he would beat it somehow. You know, as it got towards the end, it seemed pretty clear that that he wasn't going to beat it to me i don't think he ever believed that uh that he was gonna die and you know as young as he did i think he always thought he was he was gonna beat it we never had that conversation of like he he did set up our finances he had a will he you know set up a trust all, all of those things but as far as us you know having that conversation of you know if I die, this, that, the other, um, we never had that conversation. He did, he did record um, before he had his first uh, radiation, brain radiation treatments. There's, there is some chance that it can affect your cognitive abilities. So he wanted to record a message for me and for each of the kids. So I always knew that we had those. He just, you know, put them in a Google Drive folder, and I knew they were there. Um, and uh, and so I was pregnant with Barbara when um, when he recorded them, so we didn't even know if it was a boy or a girl. Um, but I knew they were there, and didn't I? I didn't quite feel ready to watch them until the the anniversary of his death on July ninth uh, this year. I, we I sort of sat the kids down and showed them on their own, each of them, but. Uh, but it was, yeah, um, it, it was very comforting to to hear, you know, the advice he had for me and and the way that, uh, you know, he was a big fan of, of the work that I do. And he was really encouraging to that that I should, you know, try to stick with that, which, you know, as a single mom now, um, it's, you know, I'm facing decisions on how, um, you know, how to provide for my family. Do I keep doing this or do I go get a more regular, <laughs> regular person job? Um, and he was very encouraging that I, that I, uh, you know, try to stick with this because he thinks that it's that with, with Catholic all year. 
Um, and that was, you know, great to, very uh, encouraging to hear. Um, how did the, how did it impact the kids to get those messages a, a year after his passing? Yeah. So, you know, the, the kids have really sort of different temperaments. Um, one of my daughters was, was, more affected than than others and she was one of the last to get to him and we had to hustle out the door to mass and she was um she was a little emotional about it all but i i think that i think it was it was overall a good and it's it's nice that they'll you know have access to those if they want to see him so he wasn't it sounds like in, in a sense he was ready to go and that he was just such a man of faith and virtue. I mean, I, I got to meet him just a couple of times. And my husband, I remember after meeting him, my husband, Joe, who was also has the military background, was just very impressed. And he had this reputation of just being a man of great virtue and holiness. Um, but it sounds like he was fighting it to the end. Yeah. No, he, he really was. And he was a person who really, who really had a goal of growing in personal holiness. And he he had you know this the this plan of life that he that he worked off of and all uh, and these different um you know spiritual sort of exercises that he would do every day and and that i think the marine corps is part of that and um you know and, and his in his catholic upbringing but but really he he had a a deep and authentic faith and he and and that was the way he lived his life and that's the way he went through his battle with cancer and 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 it's the way he died and there's so much consolation for for his family in that and you know as much as i wish every day that he were still with me um there's some part of me that 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 doesn't want to begrudge him having run his race, and of course, you know we can't uh, we we can't know what uh, what happens what has happened to our loved ones, but we have every reason to hope that um, and, and to expect that Jim is is in heaven. And his last real conversation on earth was um was confession with our friend father matt who came over and visited him on a thursday the last food that he ate was the eucharist and our our uh, pastor father marcos came over to um give him the uh last rites and his eyes were closed he you could sort of rouse him but he really wasn't um interacting anymore uh and father marcos was reading uh, you know, read a little passage from from the gospel, and and Jim opened his eyes uh, to listen, and then he asked him if he wanted to receive the Eucharist, and he said yes, and that was the last word he ever said. It was the last food he ate. Uh, you know, I, I I tell anyone who will listen to me now, you know, go to confession because as much as you know, you need it for you. You never know what's going to happen, and and it is such a comfort to our family to know that he had, you know, had the last rites, that he um, made a good confession, that he had this holy death. And Catholics have this tradition of praying to St. Joseph for a happy death. And that that's a surprising thing to hear if you've never heard it before. But 
the tra- tradition is that Joseph died at home with Our Lady and Jesus. And and so what could be a happier death than that, right? And so we pray to St. Joseph for a happy death. And Jim died you know, in our home, w- surrounded by his children, his parents, his brother and sister, um, my sister. And um, I wasn't sure when it, it was hard to know, you know, when when is it really the end? And is this going to be a long process, I, you know, to to call his parents and say, like, hey, I think you guys better get out here. That's not a call that, that you want to make. And, uh, um, you know, it's I, I sort of liken it to not wanting to sh- when you're when you're pregnant and you don't want to show up at the at the hospital and have them tell you, no, you're not really in labor. Go home. You know, I didn't want to tell everybody like, this is it. This is the end and have it, you know, not be. But but I felt like, all right, this this seems serious and I don't want them to miss it. So I, you know, let his parents know. I let his his family know. And then I sort of faced this decision. Do I do I let our, our friends know or do I keep this sort of quiet and private? And um, just sort of mulling it over and thinking, you know, so many people have known that he was sick and so many people have been praying for him. And Catholic tradition is not to have death be quiet and private. Catholic tradition is that it's something that we support each other through and that we and that we share. And so I, you know, we had his the hospice. We um, I couldn't I couldn't get him to agree to hospice until he was no longer responsive. <laughs> and so once he uh, once he was not responsive anymore, we we called hospice. And hospice is such a beautiful uh, uh, ministry that they you know they come and help prepare families who um, help you prepare the home and you know resources that you need for somebody who's dying um, in the home. So they came and set up a bed in um, a sort of semi public part of our of our home. And we told everybody, and uh, one of my good friends set up sort of a schedule, but we said, like, people can come whenever. And we had, there were rosaries being said in my house all the time. And um, and that was something that I was really grateful for, too, in particular in that moment, is the rosary, because people would come, and they would, you know, go and you know, they they would greet me. They would greet the children. They would go and say what they wanted to to be able to say to Jim, and then we'd start a rosary. And I mean, we did dozens of of rosaries, um, and and this was, I guess, Friday. Uh, this was through the day on Friday, and then he he eventually died in the middle of the day on Saturday. But so Friday and Saturday, so many of our friends, I. I I'm not great with uh, with numbers, so I don't want to say a particular number. But I, I mean, people were were just in and out all day, and and I ended up really grateful that um, that we did share that because I don't know that that uh, I think that sort of American culture is to keep death, you know, quiet and you know away from children and and you know not not talk about it, not think about it. Um, but having 
being surrounded by by our friends, being surrounded by prayer, being supported um, in that way was, I, I think it was really meaningful to um, to our family and and to our friends who got to who got to say goodbye to him. Everylife.com is America's pro-life diaper company. You want baby products for the little loved one in your life, you're going to love everylife.com. These are ethically sourced products, diapers, wipes, baby products, and they are products that are made by a pro-life company that shares your values and gives back to the pro-life movement. Check out these high-quality, wonderful products for your little one at everylife.com and use the code LILA10 at checkout for 10% off your order. That's everylife.com, America's pro-life baby company. You're going to love the products on the site. They're cute. They're ethically sourced. They're the highest of quality. That's everylife.com. Use the code LILA10 at checkout for 10% off your order. What was the hardest part about Tim's death for you? I mean, so there's the losing l- losing this person who is your, you know, your one person. That's that's got to be sort of the the worst part of it. The hardest part is the logistics afterwards. I mean, it was and and this is, you know, he had done, he had done some planning ahead of time to try to get things in order, but I mean, it was at least two months of, of full-time effort to get everything changed over into my name, to get, you know, life insurance policies sorted out and every little thing that's in his name and all these different accounts and you know retirement accounts from all every different job that he'd had so he created a a doc that had all of um at least you know all the names of the financial institutions all the um everywhere he had worked things you know all of those things which was really useful but that part was really hard and you're having to deal with with all of all of this, like so much paperwork, right on the heels of, um, you know, of of this loss. So it's kind of a double whammy of unpleasantness. <laughs> what was it like for the kids? And also, you're busy. I mean, you have ten children, including a two or almost three year old, and you're now dealing with all this paperwork, like you're saying. Yeah. And how are how was it managing that? And how were they doing? So my sister stayed and and helped me. Um, we were able to have the funeral mass and the reception pretty quickly. And, you know, I had so many friends um, able to help with that. It was a really, really beautiful mass. Um, and, yeah, again, just I think that it, it we had those consolations and comfort of, of, this, of this happy death, of knowing that he had lived his life as as well as he could and and being really supported by a great community was helpful and you know different kids have different temperaments my one of my daughters who is sort of my my one kid who notices when things need doing and and does them uh does she take after jim um yes yeah and the rest take after you or <laughs> But she, I mean, she's just a, she's a doer of things and she's very responsible. And it felt like she was feeling sort of a, 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 a real burden of 
of things undone around the house. And so when my sister headed uh, headed back to her house in Iowa, I, I asked her to take um, my daughter with her and go. She's got she's got two girls who are about you know so two cousins who are about her age, and I. It felt like she needed to not be in the chaos of my house. Not not because I didn't need her. She would have been really helpful. But all the rest of the kids, it wasn't going to bother them if things weren't up to our usual standards. So, you know, it, and and the kids dealt with it in, in different ways. Um, one of my sons, his best friend, had also lost his father. Um, and it it was strange to for them to all of a sudden have this in common but you know his mom just offered to come and pick him up and and you know what he wanted was to hang out with people and um and you know and be with other people and some of the kids wanted to the you know have more quiet time alone and and, and so there's no you know there's no right or wrong way to well I suppose there are some wrong ways, but you know within reason everybody's going to process things a little bit differently. Um, you know, and there's this standard sort of portrayal in the media of uh, of what I call the very sad widow. <laughs> um, and I was trying to, you know, I, I, I'm a person who likes to do things and I, I had, you know, my like sort of uh, needlework projects or like, you know, some crafting projects that I just sort of wanted to sit quietly. And and when I didn't have anything else to do, I wanted to watch TV and do my projects. And every show I tried to start had this. And they were really different shows who all happened to have a character who had been widowed and was unable to function, you know, of like basically abandons her children and can't take care of anything because of her grief. And I would see that like that is... That is, you know, how do I stop that from happening to me? How do I stay engaged? How do I process my grief but still stay engaged with my family and not have them suffer the loss of both of us because I'm, you know, refusing to interact with them? Um, and and again, I think that that's, you know, I call her the very sad widow, but it's really the, like, despairing widow. And, and so to, you know, to... Uh, to avoid falling into despair the like sort of the textbook definition of despair is when you uh doubt god's ability to to be to be big enough to deal with your problem or to forgive your sins specifically so you'd say well there's you know i have no recourse to god because my sins are so big that that he couldn't forgive me i couldn't go to heaven um but then also to not think, you know, my personal tragedy is so big that I couldn't give it to God, that I couldn't turn to God in this. And, you know, and I, I think that's how, and you can feel that, you know, the, the presence of that despair and, you know, just trying to keep it at bay by by turning to prayer. And, and if you can't, by asking other people to pray for you. And again, that's that, that's where that intercessory prayer comes in, because sometimes, you're just not in a place where you can pray for yourself. Um, and and I think it's such a beautiful thing to have other people, you know, carrying you at that time. What does that look like for you being in a place where maybe you're feeling numb or just so temptation on an emotional level to mm -hmm. despair where you feel that you can't pray? And then what do you do in those moments? 
Yeah, it, for me, it was just having a a couple friends that I really felt like I could trust, and it was it was something that I really struggled with. The that everybody that I would meet would tilt their head to the side and say like, "How are you doing?" As if like this acquaintance from school, like like I'm really gonna just lay it all out for you here at this Christmas party, you know. So that's something that was that was hard to to you know figure out how to navigate this sort of new world of not only being a widow but of people reacting to you um, in a particular way. And I didn't want to really dwell on things like that. So it was having just one or two people that I that I confided in, one or two people who knew. Um, it was, you know, it was two, one, like my, my sister and, uh, and, and a good friend. So to not, you know, lay that on everyone, but to have a couple people that I knew that, that, that could help me carry that burden. And then, you know, try to rise to the occasion for, for other people and for, and for my kids and, you know, spend, spend that time with them, interact with them, listen to them. And and really, like they are, they are doing really well. Um, oh, another thing that that I did, I wore I wore black uh, for for six months, mm-hmm. uh, and I kind of wish I'd done it for a whole year. Um, Why? Yeah. Um, so the sacraments are an outward expression of an inward truth. That it's something that allows us to. In, in in sort of a tactile way experience this truth and so for me wearing black was an outward expression of of the inner change that had happened in my life and and i you know it's something that 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 really went what it is a part of so many cultures throughout history and it's only you know, very recently that that we don't have any that that, that it's no longer traditional for um, to have these outward expressions of mourning, and I th- I think that it's that this sort of odd um, suppression of um, of public mourning, where you know it used to be that that even extended family, you know, you'd wear. You'd wear a, a a band so that people would know that you were in mourning and they could treat you accordingly. Now, me wearing black because I live in our time and our society, you know, I just look like a hostess at a fancy restaurant <laughs> or a like, middle-aged goth person. But I knew, and the people who knew me, it was sort of a reminder to them of of what I was going through in a way that that didn't have to be discussed you know it was it was a quiet reminder to other people and to me it was this outward expression of of an inner truth um and i sort of i i i decided to stop wearing all black at six months but and i think that kind of um that it probably would have been better to for me to, to stick with it for a whole year because I think that to me once I had taken off the black I was like all right let's get back to real life let's get back to um you know to my to my obligations and 
Um, but when I was wearing black, I think it sort of gave me, it was me giving myself permission to really be a widow. And I think that I should have, that, that it would have been better for me to continue that a little bit longer. Um, and I know, I mean, it's so uncommon for, our, for, for people to do it, but I don't know why, because I, I mean, I personally found it really helpful. What advice would you give to someone who has lost recently a spouse or a very dear loved one? I mean, it sounds like you approached grief in a very intentional way. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I did. Um, and I know that, you know, the the way I see the world isn't how everybody sees the world and the way that I experience grief isn't how everybody experiences grief. Um, but you know, there's sort of standard advice on don't make big decisions um, when you're in the middle of grief. And that, that I think is, is really good advice. Um, and uh, to, to have, to have those sort of set milestones. And, and again, there used to be the sort of an, uh, like imposed by by society sort of mile you know mile posts on what it was appropriate for somebody who had lost a spouse to to do at you know at this number of months or years afterwards and we've lost that as that sort of framework as as a society and so we're left to figure out for ourselves what would be appropriate and I know for me, like I just wasn't making great decisions those those first um, few months, and I think that it would have been helpful to have society sort of supporting me, you know, with with those sort of um, advice on here's when it would be appropriate to do this, here's when it would be appropriate to do this. Um, but again, I mean, I, I was so fortunate to have to have a good community, to have good friends, and so I would say that that too. Um, don't make big decisions <laughs> um, for, you know, at least six months, maybe a year to to really focus, on, you know, to find a couple of people that you can really trust with your grief. And that I read somewhere about, the, you know, these like circles of of grief because the people all around me were also affected by my husband's death. Right. So. My kids were also, but also the people at our school and the people that he worked with. And um, and so you're supposed to seat yourself in these circles and you're allowed to complain to people farther away and you support people, you know, on an inner ring. And so, um, you know, to find people who, you know, because my my sister, my, you know, my best friends were also really close with Jim. So they were suffering too. But I was able to find somebody who wasn't gonna, you know, who like she could dump her grief <laughs> uh, to an outward circle and just listen and support me. So to find somebody who sort of has an understanding of um, of sort of this, whatever this grief hierarchy is. Um, and, but uh, but yeah, so so to the, to trust my my kids uh, to be able to handle the you know the circumstances that they're presented with, and 
Um, I know, you know, my oldest son is now the, you know, man of the house and, and has a, you know, he was home this summer teaching little kids to tie their shoes and ride bikes. And, you know, he, I sure wasn't expecting to have that sort of responsibility at the age of 21, but, you know, trying to sort of find that, uh, walk that line between respecting his, you know, respecting him as, as a young man, um, as a young man who, you know, was parented by his father and, and is therefore sort of the, the best, uh, uh, you know, the, the one most likely to be able to sort of continue his legacy with, with the kids. Um, and then still recognizing that these are not his children and he is 21 years old. Um, but, uh, but I think that he, you know, he has been such a support to me. Mm -hmm. All the kids have, but, but, you know, so much of the responsibility kind of falls on, on him as the, as the oldest. And, uh, so it's been just really impressive to me to see the kids supporting each other and, you know, all the older kids have, um, it's so hard to give advice because everybody's situations are different. And I, I think that depending on the circumstances of the death, you know, was it sudden? Were were you prepared for it? Is it something that's, you know, more, more tragic to, uh, to be, to be dealing with? Um, you know, I, I feel like I went through it in sort of best case scenario in, in a lot of things. So I can't speak to, you know, to other people who were in, who are dealing with much more challenging situations. You know, we have really supportive family, really, um, you know, kids who are, who are supporting each other and me, that, uh, you know, this, this community that we're in. Um, and I know not all people have that sort of ideal um, as, as they're going through it. How do you navigate with all 10 of them now? You have 10. <laughs> Uh, the grief processes you mentioned multiple times they have different temperaments mm -hmm. and you're obviously having to run your business do the practical stuff your own grief process how do you manage to check in or navigate what they're going through and and be there for them while still taking care of all the other things that you have to take care of yeah um so my oldest and my third which are both sons are are um they're in college locally um so they they live in an apartment but can but come home um often and then my middle daughter my second daughter well first daughter second child uh is at you marry in bismarck north dakota which is very far from los angeles <laughs> um and and then the rest of the kids are are at home so uh father's day was really hard for my for my oldest daughter because there was a day that was um that you know the rest of us were able to be together and and she wasn't i think it was father's day and um and it was hard for her because these you know she her uh jim died and then uh and it was you know a, a month later we drove her to mm -hmm. or month and a half two months we drove her to college to drop her off and so these aren't people who knew her dad these aren't people who really know you know she she would have to 
specifically tell them, hey, my dad just died, you know. Um, so these aren't people who had known her before, not people who knew her dad. So it's a great and really, um, you know, the the uh, administration, the university president knew and he's uh, he's been really sweet and supportive to her. He wrote her a very beautiful letter, Monsignor Shea, um, wrote her a really beautiful letter. I'm a big fan of Monsignor Shea. Yeah, he's How good special. He's good people. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a really beautiful letter. Um, so I know he is is really, like, specifically looking out for her. Um, but, you know, knowing that she's in this different environment, and so I have to remember to check in with her on these, you know, on these days that she might be feeling alone, whereas the rest of us, you know, have each other together. Um, but again, I keep trying to, you know, I'll, I'll take one aside and be like, so how are you really? And really, you know, they they do seem to be doing really well. And I, I know that their dad's death isn't something that will ever go away for them. And it's something that, that you know, it, it is going to change over the course uh, of their lifetimes and there will be times that they really wish he was there and then you know my youngest who was two when when he died and was there you know he he passed away everyone cried and little two-year-old barbara looks around sees everybody's crying and kind of starts fake crying because she doesn't really know what's going on but everyone's crying i guess they're supposed to be crying and just kind of like grab her and be like, stop that. <laughs> you know, so it's going to be really different for her than it is for my oldest daughter, or my oldest son who had him in their lives for a long time. But we also believe, you know, that he can still look after our family, um, e- even though he's not physically here with us. And we know that we can, you know, pray for the repose of his soul and we can still ask him to intercede for for us um and you know i just have a lot of trust that he's looking out for all of them now i've heard it said before that the quality of someone's life can does greatly impact the quality of their death not just that you know you can't live a good life and still have a tough death or vice versa and by quality i don't mean easy Mm -hmm. but i mean what you were talking about earlier which is uh, a sense of peace, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of deep peace that is a eternal happiness that can lead to that. Do you think that, you know, what was the approach that you and Jim had and how you parented your kids together that it seems really has set them up for, for a grief process that's not as maybe, I don't want to diminish it, complicated is maybe the word, but I know for some children I've talked to or families I've talked to, uh, people close to me even that you know, the compl- complications that one may have with their parent or with the loved one, you know, brokenness, woundedness, traumas can make the death processing in some ways so much more painful. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that sort of the two pieces of that, as I see it, are are regret and and sort of general resiliency. Mm-hmm. And I know that I I can genuinely look at my marriage and not have regrets and and i was so fortunate in him and i and and that we were just we were really well suited to one another you know we had that um 
that chemistry and mutual respect and and that I think that because we were both trying to be the best people and the best Christians that we could be, that that also, you know, necessarily makes you strive to be better spouses. But, you know, by the grace of God, I don't look back on, you know, the decisions that we made in our marriage and and especially, you know, the decision to ha- uh, to be open to life and that, you know, I now have all these little pieces of him um, that that I still get to have in my life. Um, and and the way that we made his treatment decisions, the way that I was able to be in the hospital with him and, you know, just little memories of that and, the, you know, the kids coming and visiting him, him in the hospital. And um, because of the COVID regulations, um, we couldn't have all of the kids come and visit him. So I would get permission to take him for a walk in the wheelchair and I would take him out of the hospital. <laughs> and we illegally meet, and we'd meet in the courtyard and we'd have feast day dinners together um at the picnic tables with all the kids we had priests who would come and visit in in the hospital and we're saying masses you would say mass for um for our family at the hospital and um just all these like just really beautiful and great memories that we had and and things that we did together as a family even you know, even at the end, as his um, as his symptoms were 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 as his disease progressed and as his symptoms got worse, um, you spoke very beautifully about your relationship, which I wanted to ask about too. But you've already shared just that you. It sounds like you approached it where you were not going to have regrets, right, with how you loved each other in your marriage, which is a big deal. Mm-hmm. How many of us married? I mean, I'm only five years in, but. I can name some things that I wish I'd done differently already. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, that's a... Yeah, so yeah. so regret. And then the other piece is that resilience. Mm-hmm. And that was just sort of a core value for for Jim. And I think that as, you know, that growing up on the south side of Chicago and being a Marine, um, it was just something that that was really important to him that the kids that that we um taught the kids to be you know to be self-starters to to have um you know some freedom and and autonomy to do things on their own to uh to discover things to try things and and to you know to be tough and to you know deal with with challenges and that was just right from right from the beginning something that Jim cared a lot about about teaching them and you know it's that that quote that probably isn't by Pope Benedict but that you know you um you weren't made for comfort you were made for greatness and and to just you know it was important to him that 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 we not have that um focus on on ease and comfort that that we would you know tell the kids that you know tyrannies do things the tyranny way tyrannies tyrannies can handle spicy food tyrannies can handle you know when when tyrannies get hurt they say ouch 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 <laughs> um and and you know he had no idea that that the thing that he was preparing them for was his death um but 
But I think that that sort of that that overall focus on being resilient and not denying that that difficult things have happened, not denying the you know that that something is is painful. It's being able to 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 go on anyway, to go on in the face of of hardship. Uh, in, in you know, it's it's not denying it. It's it's you know the only way out is through, and um and and so I think that 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 he did sort of prepare all of us, uh, you, you know, for for being able to handle it. That's an incredible example, I think, to me and anyone listening of how to live, <laughs> and and in a sense, you know, our whole life we we are preparing for death, and so how we live is is how in many ways, how we die. Mm-hmm. Um, what about your sons? How are you, how many sons do you have? Five, five and five. Five and five. Yeah. And some of them, the youngest son is how old? He is six. How do you, how do you look at that, your due responsibility of being a single mother to all those sons? Yeah, that's, it's something that is a little daunting, I, I, I will say, and especially because Jim was such you know, a, a big presence, a, a, you know, such a, such an important influence. I, I look at, you know, when my, when my older sons, I see them doing things that I know they learned from my husband. And I think, oh no, you know, how will the younger ones do that? And like so what? what's an example? Um, uh, so we, we host, uh, a, uh, women's conference at my house every mm-hmm. uh, every fall. I just just sat at the Fiat conference, and it's always been like an all hands on deck thing for our family. That it's something we put on for for the community. And so my older sons are the like security guards. My God, <laughs> you know, but they're up at five o'clock in the morning, carrying things, setting things up, and you know, it's not for them. It's not for their friends. And um, and so uh. You know, that's just something that Jim had this expectation that, like, this is mom's thing that she does, and we are all going to help her do it. Wow. Uh, and so that has continued. You know, we we just put on another one, and my boys are, are they came home from college, are up at five o'clock in the morning, setting up tables um, for it. And then, you know, just little things like my my third son, Bobby, found a found a, a dead butterfly but he found this butterfly that was perfect and you know he took it and he um and uh he went and and gave it to little barbara and he was telling her you know all about the different parts of the butterfly and he got her a little container to hold it in um and uh one of the artisans um at at, uh, at our little artisan fair at the conference overheard him telling Barbara all about this butterfly and you know she came to me and she said you know I just I know that that that's the example that Jim Hmm. set for them of 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 this masculinity that is based in service you know that like of caring for our family um and it's just so touching you know to see that reflected in you know these giant sons of mine um you know who are are you know l- looking after the the little ones um 
yeah. And so how do I how do I recreate that for my younger sons? And my my hope is that the older sons will, you know, pass that along. And also we have this great community and uh and Mr. Bowles is uh is my my uh troublesome my my most lovable troublesome boy is uh is in his boy scout troop perfect uh, and i heard he did a, a, a backpacking uh camping trip with boy scouts i it, it makes sense one of your kids would have been it because i remember joking around with my brother his son-in-law and saying what a, what a man to go and none of these are his grandsons right. you right. know he's doing yeah. this out of love for the community you know he spends lots of time with his grandsons too mm-hmm. But it sounds like they're like adopted grandsons. No, they, they they really are. And it's really, it feels really meaningful to me that the men who were my husband's good friends, they have really, you know, been there for, for my kids. And, you know, when one of them was having trouble in school and I decided, all right, I'm going to just bring him home uh, and homeschool him for the rest of the year. And his godfather says, well, like, do you want him to come and live with us? Wow. For for the rest of the semester. And it's like, that is a really, you know, he has 11 kids of his own. <laughs> um, and and so, but but this is, I mean, people, Jim's friends really, really loved him. And um, and I know that, you know, I can count on, on them. One of my other son's godfathers came and, you know, helped me supervise the like kids birthday parties and entertaining and hospitality was always something that was really important to both of us and we would to Jim and I and we would host a lot of events at our house and uh and I was wondering you know how can I keep doing that you know we have a St. Patrick's Day party that is usually 300 350 people at my house and I'm thinking how am I going to manage this and um and one of uh, one of our friends just texted me like to um, before the party. He says, "You know, my my two teenage sons and I are going to be at your house at at this time to you know help you set up." And and they came and uh, you know so my expectation is that you know that the people who loved Jim and uh, we we also have you know both of their grandparents are their grandfathers are really involved um, in in their lives and. Um, and still, you know, loving them and 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 setting a good example for them. Um, so my hope is that you know the presence of all of these people, all these men who loved Jim and were, um, you know, and that their lives were affected by by him. That uh, you know that that my kids will feel that. Um, there's a there's a really interesting talk that William Bennett gave about that. Um, you know, you hear all these statistics about how terrible it is for children to lose their father but apparently those statistics aren't the same for um for kids who lost their parents in war or uh, in the line of duty in some way that 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 when kids understand that their fathers didn't want to leave them that their fathers loved them and especially if they lost their lives in in this pursuit of some sort of great good that they don't experience that loss in the same way. And so I'm I am really hopeful that that my kids you know, they they know and understand that their dad fought so hard to stay here with them even though we believe in this beautiful afterlife that that we 
you know, hope that that he's in this eternal happiness. And he understood that and still wanted to stay with us for as long as he could. Um, so I think that my kids, that I think that they understand that. He left an incredible legacy and the one that you're still building of community and faith and family that I think can make so much of the difference. How did he and how did you, how do you now manage your time to make space for liturgical living in the faith? You know, that has primacy in your life. Raising, parenting, 10 unique souls, business, friendships. It sounds like your husband especially had so many friendships. You're very hospitable. Yeah, I would say that that is the part of this that I'm struggling with the most, that trying to, you know, trying to prioritize things, um, trying to decide, uh, you know, when to coddle myself a little bit, when to, you know, give myself a kick in the pants to, um, you know, to to start accomplishing some things. Um, I think that that's that's hard and and it's got to be um I, I think that that it's i i have been i guess a working mom for a long time but i've never seen myself as that it always just sort of was a side hustle and i was a stay at home homeschooling mom and i want to but my you know my kids are in school now so that i can uh you know try to focus on uh on making the business success but at the same time, I still want to have that feeling in my home of 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 that my kids are the priority, um, and it is really hard. And I, you know, I'm uh, I have a lot of <laughs> uh, you know I have a lot of uh, res- you know respect and sympathy now for for um, single moms, for working moms, for for people trying to figure out how to how to prioritize these things. And I would I would say that I have officially not figured all of that out. <laughs> how do you give yourself grace in that process of figuring out how to be that single parent, that business owner, grief, mm-hmm. being a widow? Yeah, I, I think that a big part of it has been that, that so there's another Padre Pio quote that, uh, that, I, that I really love that it says, um, you know, something to the effect of blessed is the um, the crisis that made you, uh, you know, that, that made you look to God. Blessed is the fall that, you know, that that made you reliant on God. And and that that has been, I think, something that I've been really grateful to have been able to you know, sort of find my way through over these past few months and end up in a place of spending a lot more time in prayer, a lot more time in personal prayer than I ever did before. Because, you know, I I, I always sort of considered myself like, all right, I'm this worker bee. God's going to, God gives me these inspirations. God has given me these jobs. I'm just going to work, 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 and I'm going to get these things done for the kingdom. And as for whatever reason, my like, you know, worker bee mentality hasn't been bringing the same sort of success that it did when my husband was alive. And I've really found recourse in prayer in a way that that I I didn't have before. And 
So in some ways, it just feels like this is the season. This is this is where God wants me right now to to feel really reliant on him and not rely, not feel like I can rely on myself, not feel like I can accomplish everything to see that 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 if I'm working just as hard and things are not as successful as they used to be, then that's a big reminder of that it was never me to begin with. Um, and and that I've always been a big proponent of the sort of bless it or block it prayer that if God wants me to be doing something, then he's going to, um, you know, and obviously it, it does require that, you know, personal commitment. But but if God wants something to be a success, then he then it will be. Um, and if uh, and, and if it's not, then maybe that's then that's because he wants me to be spending my um, energy in a different place somehow. Um, but but I would say that you know that, that it's that sort of feeling of of when when your life doesn't look exactly the way that you wish it would, and you don't see a an immediate plan you know like i love a plan i love a plan and when i look at my life and i see well there's no plan i can make that gets me to the life i had before there's no plan i can make that gets me really to a clear um you know place where i would consider myself in like an ideal family situation again there's no plan i can make for that and so all i can do is you know like St. Peter, when he says, you know, where else can we turn? Where there is nowhere else to turn. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, it just is, is feeling, allowing yourself to feel that vulnerability and turn to God. That's such a powerful prayer. Bless it or block it. Yeah. It's yeah. good. No, it's good. <laughs> and to know you, you, we do what we can, but at the end of the day, the Lord is the one that blesses her blocks the mm-hmm. lord does does what he will right and and i i i honestly appreciate that reminder because i think that that for for people who are like religious professionally <laughs> you know that that it's it's easy to sort of think like here's me doing all this good stuff when you like you have to realize like you know saint uh uh uh, Teresa of Calcutta, who says, you know, I'm just a pencil, that uh, that she's not, you know, she's saying, I'm not the one doing all these things. I'm just, you know, working. I'm, I'm just accomplishing what God wants me to accomplish. And so to realize, like, none of this was me to begin with. This was all God. This was, you know, by the grace of God, I was able to correspond to, you know, and, and do some of these things that he wanted me to do. And if he wants it to look different now, then then that's allowed. <laughs> Kendra, thanks so much for joining the podcast. This has been awesome. Thank you. I'm so excited for people to follow your work more. And where can people find your work? Uh, CatholicAllYear.com. And I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. And yeah, uh, I'm I'm pretty easy to find. Unformed. Awesome. <laughs> and unformed. <laughs> Register with any parish yeah. and, and find right. formed. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kendra. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Lila Rose podcast. As usual, don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening, if it's on YouTube or your podcast app. And don't forget, if you're on podcast app, to leave us a review. Every review, five stars, helps the podcast reach more people. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.